All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the Minor Prophets. We're going to be picking back up into Zechariah. Had a little bit of a break last week with Pastor thankfully stepping in and filling in to do a standalone study. But we're going to pick back up into Zechariah and do a little bit of a review just to get our minds back into what Zechariah is seeing and all these visions that he has. We're going to have a little more of the visions today and a little more difficult ones too to interpret. But with that, we'll go ahead and open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so just as a way of review, remember the time frame of Zechariah. He's a contemporary of Haggai. So remember, we have the Babylonian captivity, then the Persians coming in with Cyrus, and he's saying, hey, you guys can come back. You can start to rebuild the temple. And the people of Israel are getting a little lazy, and they're saying, eh, we may hold off a little bit on building it. Haggai comes in, kind of whips them into shape a little bit, and then Zechariah also comes in. Does the same thing, a little more expansive than what Haggai does, since Haggai's only two chapters. But within Zechariah, we have these eight visions, starting in chapter 1. We had the vision of the horsemen, then the vision of horns and craftsmen, vision of a man with a measuring line, and then just the marvelous vision of Joshua and the high priest. If you'll recall with that one, remember have Joshua coming in and Satan standing ready to accuse him. And the Lord speaking of taking off his filthy garments, clothing him with these white garments and establishing him as the, the high priest. And remember with Joshua, we have Yeshua, Jesus, the ultimate and great high priest. So we have some wonderful imagery there, some wonderful fulfillment in Christ in that vision of Joshua as the high priest. And then just some marvelous uh, promises that we have of Good Friday that will come in verse 9, that he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So we have just explicitly stated there what will take place and that it will all take place just on that single day, Good Friday. Any questions or anything else that we need to clarify just to get us on the right frame of mind before we get into the new material? Okay, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, just a pretty difficult vision for us to to interpret. We're going to have a few of those today, so hopefully we can make some sense of it, even if we don't get all the details. We can at least kind of step back and see what the overall thrust of the vision is. So 4, verse 1, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. So already off the bat, have some little bit of difficulties here of him 
woke me like a man who is awakened out of sleep. So what's that like a man who is awakened? Was he asleep? Was he not? What is that about? Kind of difficult to understand there, but some of these visions are kind of as a dream. Some may be while he's awake. He sees these visions and don't have clear answers on all this. But so he's gotten his attention. The angel has gotten Zechariah's attention. Verse 2, and he said to me, what do you see? Always an inquisitive angel. I said, I see and behold a lampstand of gold, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. All right, so we've already got a lot going on here. Kind of like with that first vision that we had with the horsemen. We had like the myrtle trees and all these horsemen, who's who and all that. So to try and step back a little bit, let's go to page 554 if you have your study Bibles. Just to get a picture of, even though it's not exactly what he's speaking of, it'll kind of, kind of give us a little bit of an image Page 544. Kind of have all these different depictions of kind of these art forms or these different pieces within the temple. And you see where the C is? Letter C. You have that kind of lamp looking thing. It's not kind of what we typically think of as a lamp, but we have this kind of bowl structure that almost kind of looks like those tortilla chips, those tortilla scoops, you know? You pick up a bunch of salsa, kind of that sort of shape. So you have this giant bowl that holds all the oil with the seven, seven lights around it. So it's kind of what he's speaking of, of this bowl. I mean, no one really, even the commentators or the, even at the bottom of the study Bible, trying to make sense of exactly what does this lampstand look like. It's kind of hard to tell because you've got a giant bowl on top of it, then seven lamps. Okay, are the lamps below the bowl with the bowl kind of feeding the oil into the lamps or what is it? Difficult for us to understand and get exactly what he's speaking of. But nevertheless, we have a bowl with seven lamps and seven lips on each of the lamps. So that would, doing some math, that would put you up to 49 different wicks on this lamp. So a rather giant lampstand with a lot of light being emitted from it. So we'll get to the interpretation here in a little bit after the angel kind of answers some of those questions for us. So you've got this giant lamp with 49 wicks on it. And there are two olive trees, verse 3, back in Zechariah 4. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So we got this giant lamp, 49 different lights on it. Then you have these two olive trees standing next to it. Well, what kind of oil are they going to be using for the lamp? Olive oil. So we have these two olive trees feeding in the oil for the lamp. So again, kind of difficult for us to picture that necessarily, but we've got these two olive trees, one on either side of this giant lampstand. And I said to the angel who talked with me, 
What are these, my Lord? Then the angel has a rather sarcastic remark. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? Well, no, why was I asking the question? I mean, if, he, if we don't know what this giant lampstand is with seven lamps and each with seven lips on it, I don't think Zechariah necessarily knew. So he asked him, what are these? The angel is kind of like, well, don't you know? Isn't it obvious to you? Surely you know what this is. Which the angel, apparently it must have been obvious to the angel. He's like, what do you mean you don't know? But I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So a call with Zerubbabel, the kind of governor of the area. He was the one that started to instigate the rebuilding of the temple, kind of kick things into high gear of whom comes Christ. So he's in the lineage of Christ. We get that in Matthew's genealogy. So this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. All right, so we're not going to quite get the explanation yet until towards the end of the chapter, and even then it's still a little fuzzy for us. But, so all the commentators speak this way, even Revelation takes it this way. We'll look at Revelation here in a minute when we get to verse 10. But so the lamp, what would be the lamp? If you recall from Revelation, what do we... Good old apocalyptic imagery that we have. Let's go ahead and turn there. Let's go over to Revelation. All right, we'll just start in Revelation chapter 1. All right, so in verse 4, we get the greetings to the seven churches, and then he moves on. We're not going to go through all of that. But then we get to... Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." All right, so we have these greeting to the seven churches, then we have these seven lampstands. What would then be the seven lampstands? Picturing. The of God. Do what? The son of man, so God. Well, in the midst of the seven lampstands yeah. is one. Churches. Yeah, so the seven churches. So we have this imagery of the lampstands being the churches. 
And then we fast forward in Revelation. All right, so keep a finger in Revelation chapter 5 real quick. And then flip back to Zechariah. We're jumping around a little bit just because it's a little bit of a difficult vision. So trying to make sense of it. And then even though we haven't gotten there quite yet, Zechariah 4 verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of, despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And then this specifically These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So we have this lampstand with seven lamps on it, seven lights on it. So pay attention to that second half of verse 10. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Now, flip back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes. And what's that last part of verse 6? Which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. So we have seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. Does that kind of sound familiar to verse 10? These are the seven, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So we have this similarity in language here of these the Spirit of God being sent throughout all the earth with these seven lights on top of the lamp. When you think of a fire and you think of Pentecost, what spirit are you thinking of? The Holy Spirit here. So we have these, this giant lampstand being the church. On top of that, we have these lights that are lit, these flames of fire, which is the Holy Spirit, fed by oil, which is going to be the means by which that continues on, that, go, that light goes through all the earth, which what means does the Lord use to send forth his word through all the earth. The preaching of the word through the mouth of pastors, the word and the sacraments here. So we have these two things, these two olive trees that are then delivering that fuel in order for the light to continue to shine through the earth. And so that is by means of the church here that we have this. Again, Hard for us to kind of comprehend. It's a difficult vision, and we're not going to quite understand all of it. Are there questions on this so far? All right, so clear as mud as we continue on. So we'll go back into Zechariah, and we'll, since we skipped around a bit, go back up to um, verse 6. Now that we kind of get what's what in this vision. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So remember, Zerubbabel is trying to rebuild the temple during this time. He's getting some pushback from the people and everything. 
And so this is the word to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? So what is that great mountain? What is the problem of a mountain? If he's trying to continue on his pathway to rebuild the temple, there's a mountain in his way. There's some obstacles for him to be able to accomplish his task. And the Lord's words to him is, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, so that mountain shall be wiped down. Those obstacles that are in your way shall be brought low in order for you to be able to accomplish that task of rebuilding the temple. Now, for Zerubbabel, is it going to be by his own might or power that he'll be able to accomplish this? No, by my spirit. So we have the working of the spirit in order to accomplish what he desires, namely the rebuilding of the temple here. And he shall bring forward the top stone. So we have the giant building of the temple and then you have the crowning piece right on top. So the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So we have this promise to Zerubbabel that it will be accomplished within his lifetime. There's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not going to go on forever. You'll finally get this completed. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So remember, how's the nation of Israel kind of looking right now, having just come back out of the Babylonian captivity? Are they a great and mighty nation right now? No. No. They're pretty puny. Even the temple that they're going to be rebuilding is nothing like its former glory that they had. We've seen that previously in the... I can't remember if it's in Zechariah or which minor prophet... But whoever despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So he'll finally rejoice at this completion that will take place at the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left and the left of the lampstand? So he's asking about these olive trees. And then verse 12 seems odd because we don't have a response to that question. And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? So it seems like he's kind of clarifying the question. First, he's asking what these olive trees are. Now, what are these two branches from which all this oil flows? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? Again, of course I don't know. That's why I'm asking you even a second time. I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So who are the two main figures here in Zechariah that we've seen? Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. So we have the governor, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, 
the priest. So we have both, both kingdoms, if you want to put it that way, both sides of it. So these are the two anointed ones, the ones of whom the Lord has chosen to accomplish this task, who stand by the Lord. And we can kind of allegorize it out if we so desire. But again, kind of difficult vision. What's the, what's the main takeaway, though, from this vision is, are you going to be able to do it by your might, by your power? No. It's going to be by the Spirit of God. And what is the lampstand if not the church? So are we going to be able to accomplish our things by our own might or by our power? No. By the Spirit of God who works, who flows in this oil from these trees through these means in order to carry out his purpose to bring forth that light throughout the world. So it's a great comfort for us as well today, even as it was to Zerubbabel, that you'll have these mountains that will be put up in front of you, but the Lord will accomplish his purpose, not by our own might or power, but by his, by his working through these different means. Any questions on the very clear vision of a golden lampstand? I'd like to say it's going to get clearer as we go on, but maybe you need a second cup of coffee or a third one before we keep on going, because then we're really going to see some crazy stuff with the flying scroll coming up in chapter 5. So, no questions? Got one up front? Okay, because I'm thinking of the Hallelujah Chorus. Every mountain shall be raised and the valley shall be made straight. Mm-hmm. Is this correlating with the coming of Christ, who is the temple itself? That's a fun connection that I have definitely thought of while I was studying this as well. Okay. I'm glad you actually brought it up because I kind of forgot that connection. Okay. But I mean, what do we see with John the Baptist whenever he's coming in? Straight. The crooked path straight. Mm-hmm. So he's making this path, making way for the Christ. So again, kind of the similar imagery too of, again, who is Christ except the temple. We'll see that later on. We're going to pick up some more temple imagery uh, in chapter 6, and then we'll look more explicitly at the temple relation to Christ in light of John 2. Any other questions? All right. Verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Gold star for Zechariah here. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know my conversions of cubits here. But what, let's see. I got to get it right. Uh, verse 2. Oh, now, where is it? Yeah, 30 by 15. Thank you. So it's a massive scroll flying through the air. 30 feet by 15 feet flying through the air that he sees. I don't, know if you, I don't know if they really have any of those planes around here that like fly along the coast with those giant banners. Have you seen that? Whenever we go down to Florida, my family, you always see them passing by of, you know, buy one box of saltwater taffy, you get a second free. 
you know, come to the gift shop down the street type of stuff. It'd just be like that massive thing, just massive scroll flying through the air. Zechariah must have thought some crazy stuff here as he's seen this. He's a flying scroll with its length being 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Yeah, we'll go down this little rabbit hole. All right, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 6. Because it seemed oddly specific of why, why that length and was until doing some. I can't remember where I read it, but they pointed out a connection to 1 Kings chapter 6. So this is with Solomon building the temple, starting in verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front, in front of the nave of the house was what dimensions? 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. So we have this nave area being 20 cubits by 10 cubits, which is the same dimensions here that we see of the flying scroll. So at least one commentator makes the connections there to bring back to mind this, the old temple that they had, and we'll see why here in a few minutes, bringing back to mind the old temple, the old way of how things were done, the old force of the law, and we'll see how that continues to carry on. So back into Zechariah 5. So he sees a flying scroll, that's its length and its width, then he said to me, this is the curse. So the scroll is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. All right, so is the scroll necessarily great news? Is it, you know, buy some saltwater taffy and you get some free that's flying through the air? No, it's a curse that's going to go out over all the land. For, who, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. So according to what's on one side of the scroll. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." So what commandments do we see laid out here? Go back to your small catechism days. So we have stealing being the, which commandment number? (coughs) I always have fun quizzing confirmation students. Seven. Seven. Seven, yeah. So we've got... Remember the two tables of the law? Remember that? One through three, between God and man. Four through ten, man to man. Sins against man, sins against God. 
So we have the seventh commandment being the second table of the law, sins against your neighbor. And then we have, this one's kind of tricky because in verse 3, it seems whenever it says swears falsely, you'd be thinking, which commandment? The eighth. The eighth of bearing false witness. But then at the end of verse 4, the house of him who swears falsely by my name. Who is speaking? Yeah. So we have swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, which would be the second commandment, the first table. So we have the one who steals shall be cleaned out according to what's on one side of the scroll. And the one who swears falsely by my name shall be cleaned out from according to what's on the other side of the scroll. So we have the two tables of the law being upheld here as it's flying overhead. And so now is he saying, hey, you're going to be setting up this new temple. You're going to be having the new high priest and do away with the whole Ten Commandments, the whole law. Is he saying that at all? No, he's upholding that. He's saying, yeah, you're going to have a new temple. Things are going to be looking different, but don't forget about those Ten Commandments. The law is still in full force here. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. All right, any questions about the flying scroll? Our brains are going to be spinning at the end of this. I, I just know it. It's already spinning. <laughs> Still clear as mud as we're going through these visions? All right. All right, so now it's going to get even crazier. So brace yourselves, guys. We're almost done with the vision, though. We've only got two more. So the last one's, I'll say it easier, just to give us some hope. So vision of a woman in a basket. All right, so we've had a golden lampstand with a bunch of lights, and we had a flying scroll, and now there's going to be a woman in a basket. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see See what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. Your study note makes it, or states that it's going to be in. The Hebrew word is actually an ephah, which is three-fifths of a bushel, or 22 liters. I wish I could have given that to us in gallons or something, because... Bushels and liters don't really mean much to me, but whatever that looks like, it's still not going to be enough to necessarily fit a woman in, but nevertheless, there will be a woman in the basket. This is a basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket, All right, so we've got this basket that's clearly not large enough for a woman to be in. He opens it up, and there's a woman in the basket. Again, Zechariah, his mind must be spinning as much as ours is. Yet the angel of the Lord gives it to him. This is their iniquity in all the land. So the basket is their iniquity. And your little, that little number six points you down to the manuscript notes and says most Hebrew manuscripts have the word I instead of 
the Hebrew word for iniquity, which is a, I mean, it's a fairly common scribal mistake, if it is a mistake at all. Because one of them is Ainon, the other is Ionon. So there's only one letter that is going to be transposed. And so even the letters themselves kind of look alike. One, you just kind of go further down on the page. The other, you stop part way. And so it can be a common scribal mistake of whether it's iniquity or I. But what is, how often do we use our eyes for iniquity? They have their eyes set on things that are not necessarily great. That we'll see here in a second. So this basket is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness, capital W here. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So he lifts this cover of the basket, sees a woman in it. And what is the title of the woman except wickedness? So we have the iniquity of the people. Dwelling within that iniquity is wickedness. And so he says, "Uh, nope, I'm going to cover that back up. I'm going to send it on its way back to whence it came. Verse 9, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. All right, so even more imagery here. So we have a woman in a basket with a, bat, with a lid on it, sending them away. And then he lifts up his eyes and there's two women coming forward. And they're going to take the basket and take it away. Your study note says that it's likely angels, though the setting is in a vision which may not depict heavenly reality. And does note that this is the only place in scripture, if they are to be taken as angelic figures, that women are depicted as angels here. So whether or not they're depicted as angels or just as women in the vision, who knows? They had wings, though. Again, not like we have on our little Christmas trees or little Valentine's Day cards with Cupid. They had wings like the wings of a stork. So they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So your study note on verse 11, the land of Shinar, says it's Babylon, the land from which the exiles had come, a land where many Judeans were still living. All right, so we have this wickedness that's dwelling within the midst of the people that have just come back from Babylon. And what do we see in this vision? He lifts it open, sees the wickedness dwelling in their midst, closes the lid, and he's like, "Uh, no, let's send this away. And so the wickedness that was dwelling with the people is now being sent back to Babylon because they're going to be reestablishing this new temple, this new way of living. Do they want to bring back their old Babylonian customs, their pagan gods and everything, back into their midst? No. 
They want to send them away, drive them away back into their own land in order to keep this new temple, this new way of life here, pure from those things. Because what was going on during the Babylonian captivity? You have some young single guys, a bunch of Babylonian young women along. They get married, and they all maybe come back to Israel here. The Babylonian wife is going to be worshiping some pagan gods. How quickly or how long is it going to take before the household is worshiping the pagan gods? And so here it's this cleansing out of this pagan way of life, the Babylonian gods and all this, sending it back to their land in order to purify this new land here. It just happens to take place in a crazy vision that the Lord seems to think we can handle here. So, Any questions on this crazy vision? It would have been great if we could have split these up into two weeks, but just the timing of it, you're just getting it all today. So it will be easier after we get out of these visions. I say that now. We'll see how it goes later on, though. But with that, though, we are nearing the end of the Minor Prophets. You know, there's only, was it 14 chapters in Zechariah? Yeah, 14. There's only like four chapters in Malachi. So moving at the pace we're moving, we're going to be done with the Minor Prophets here in a few weeks, which means a new series. So I've already got one suggestion for a potential series that we're going to have. If you guys have any other ideas, anything you guys would necessarily want us to study, I'm going to be open to suggestions. You can talk to me after class or even next week. But probably by the end of next week, we should probably decide on a new path since we're not going to have but just a couple more weeks before we need to move on. So start thinking of those things. Come up to me, talk to me, email me, call me, whatever, and we'll go from there. So start thinking of that, seeing what you'd you'd like. I am going to try to keep it contained, though, to the end of my vicarage. That way the new vicar isn't trying to pick up midway through something especially if we're going through a crazy book. I don't want to start him off with that. So whatever it is, even if it is a longer one, that may mean we just kind of truncate it down and do a more kind of surface-level reading of it. But just food for thought, start thinking of it, and then we'll get back into the visions here. in Chapter 6. Now vision of the four chariots. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. All right, so we have these four chariots, and what are chariots signifying again? We have military power going on, seeing that all throughout the Minor Prophets, throughout apocalyptic literature. So we have these four chariots, and they're coming out between two mountains. Some of the commentators make note of the two pillars that you had in the temple right at the entrance. 
So potentially the chariots coming out of the Lord's dwelling place, where the Lord dwelt with his people, coming out. And the mountains were mountains of bronze, the first chariot. So we have red, black horses, white horses, and dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. He said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. All right, so another very clear, clear vision for us to understand what's going on here. All right, so what is going on here. We have these four chariots going out to the four winds of heaven. So on a compass, how many cardinal directions do you have? Four. So we have the entirety of the earth kind of in mind here. So these four chariots coming out to carry out the Lord's will in those different areas. So they go out and they're going to be patrolling the earth And then in verse 8, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So we have this kind of conquering that is taking place in order to bring about peace in this northern country, to bring about peace where the Lord wills it. Again, just difficult visions. Even it's hard for me to wrap my mind around all these fully. So hence kind of the the uncertainty of some of these things. But what is the general thrust of this? We can get lost in the weeds here. But so we have four chariots. Whose chariots are they? Who's commanding all these chariots? Yeah, the Lord of hosts. Remember the Lord of armies. He's sending out these chariots to patrol the earth to bring about peace. Are the people bringing about peace on their own? Are they? No. The Lord is the one who's going to be bringing about peace when and where he wills it. So again, another reminder to them that the Lord's in control, God's God, they're not. And so have faith that the Lord is in fact in control. And so he shows them, Zechariah, this vision even in the, of the four chariots here. Because again, there's going to be unrest during this time as he's trying to rebuild this temple. People are going to be fighting back against him and saying, you know, why are we spending all this money on this temple, you know, can't we worship God, you know, in the woods by this tree? Why do we need this whole temple and sacrificial system? So it's going to be pushed back and there could be unrest in the Persian Empire and everything. So just another reminder of the Lord is in control here. Any questions? I'm not sure when the 
this quote was written. But this is a, I think the second time I recognized that the mention was bronze. Mm-hmm. I think it would be part of the temple kind of furniture and everything that they would have. Let me see if the study note says anything about the bronze. Yeah, so the um, study note. So those pillars that I were ta- talking about at the entrance of the temple, mm-hmm. they were pillars of bronze here. Yeah. So we have... Do what? That wouldn't work. With Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't think. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've got all the Levitical codes well, and was, everything. When was Zechariah written? Zechariah was in around 520 BC. So Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem in 605. And the temple is destroyed in like 587, 586. And so then you have the temple is finally complete in 516. So we're within that time frame. So he's still got a couple more years, probably about two, three years until the temple is finally complete here. Mm -hmm. Anything else? All right, then trudge along, and this one's going to be a little easier. So, the word of the Lord came to me. So th- that's, that was actually the last of the visions. Sorry, I should have pointed that out. We would have had a big smile on our faces after being done with the visions. But, so we get now into this new section, starting in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobajah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So your study note, it's not necessarily too important, but they were recently arrived into Jerusalem from Babylon. So he's going to be speaking to these three guys that have come. So they were to go to the house of Josiah, and they were Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. All right, so whenever we had Joshua and the high priest, what connection did we have? Joshua and who else? The great high priest that would come of Christ. Yes. So we have this crown that is to be made to set it upon the head of Joshua, which is in itself kind of odd because you wouldn't necessarily have a high priest being crowned. You'd have like a turban and everything, but not necessarily a crown as a kingly figure, you would have him as a priestly figure here. So we kind of have a mixing going on here. And they were to put it on the head of Joshua, remember, Yeshua, Jesus, 
and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So, behold, the man whose name is Joshua? No, the branch. Who is the branch? Christ. We had that earlier in chapter 3, verse 8, of, in the vision of the Joshua and the high priest and everything. We had the branch. It may have been before that. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. All right, now think back to John chapter 2. Remember the disciples come out of the temple. If you were at the divine service this morning, you would have heard this text. So he comes out, and what does he speak about the temple? Destroy it, and in three days, he'll rebuild. Of whom was he speaking? Of himself. So when he shall build the temple of the Lord. So who is going to be doing the building, and what kind of temple is it? But it's the Lord who is going to be building up the temple, which is his body. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobajah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah, which your study note just says are different names for the same people here. All right, so we have this crown that's going to be made and placed in the temple as a reminder for what? Of the one who is going to come, on whose head would be placed the true crown, crowning him as the great high priest, prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah that would come. So his crown is going to be made and placed into the temple as that reminder of the Messiah who is to come. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right, so we have this ingathering of these people that are coming from far away to help and build this temple to help. Build up this body of Christ. So it's in gathering of people from all the corners of the earth. All right, any questions on this? We'll probably just do one final section. I think all of our brains are kind of jumbled up right now. So we'll see just how long this section takes and then. Whatever time's left, we may just stop there for today. So, chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, so you study note points this as being two years later from what has just happened, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth months, in the fifth month, 
as I have done for so many years. So looking at your study note on verse 3, for the weeping and abstaining, these are rituals of humiliation and repentance involving shedding of tears and fasting, recalled the horrible events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. All right, so we have these people coming up and saying, you know, we want to have the Lord look favorably upon us. Should we keep on fasting and doing these things to weep? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So has proper fasting been going on here for these whole 70 years? They're thinking, oh, you know, we're trying to have the Lord look favorably upon us, but you know, has it been for me that you fasted? And when you ate and drank, did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So everything that you have been doing has been for yourselves here. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears and their might, or in their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. All right, so we have the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah and saying, hey, don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Don't do all of these things. What have the people done? Have they heeded those words? No. Stopping up their ears, wanting nothing to do with that. We've seen that all throughout the Minor Prophets, especially with Amos. Remember, he had all the judgments against the different nations that were around Israel, and then finally he goes on the attack on Israel. And it's just the same, the same things that they've been doing of oppressing the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and all these. So it was by great anger that the Lord, or with great anger, the Lord sees these things. And he scattered them with whirlwind among the nations and they had not, that they had not known. That's the land they left was desolate. So in response to this, the Lord had sent them out. All right, so, again, still kind of clear as mud on all these things. 
My brain's just not totally with it today, so sorry I'm kind of scatterbrained and everything, but may also be because of the visions. A little difficult to comprehend. Any thoughts, questions on any of these? All right, so next week we're going to be getting to some different sections of this coming piece. So we're kind of ending on a rough note here of the Lord scattering his people that he has done. But then we're going to get some great promises of the restoration and the great promises that the Lord gives for salvation to his people toward the end of Zechariah, which we've seen with a lot of the minor prophets, you know, kind of got this judgment that's coming, but then also this great, this great hope that is held out at the end. So hopefully next week will be a little bit easier to comprehend, a little bit more joyful as we look at this and contemplate the glories of God here. So any final thoughts, questions? All right, so be thinking about any potential studies. We want to carry on after these minor prophets and we'll Probably try to decide on that by the end of next class, just so we have a little bit of a game plan. That way Wendy can get it up on the newsletter and everything. Got to place it everywhere. So, all right. The Lord be with you.